Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Good morning. Welcome to our morning worship service at West Houston Bible Church. Uh, each uh, week we get together as a body of believers in order to assemble together, as Scripture mandates, that we might come together and study God's Word in order to learn how to think correctly about God and about ourselves, about uh, human history, and that we might change the way we think so that we think according to the Scriptures and not according to the world system, whatever that may be at any area of the earth or any time in history. Scripture teaches that we are to live lives, that our lives indeed are to be in service to the Lord and to be a, an act of worship. But as believers in the corporate body of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to meet together on a regular basis in order to study the Word, in order to uh, pray, in order to glorify God, encourage one another just by the meeting of the local church. Scripture teaches, though, that there are certain procedures that are important to follow when we worship the Lord. We are to worship Him by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. And Scripture teaches that though we are saved eternally when we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, and that no sin can ever harm or end or compromise that salvation, nevertheless, when we do sin, we are out of fellowship. And that ongoing relationship with God is broken, that rapport is broken, and it is recovered simply by confession of sin. First John 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we begin each uh, service with a few moments of silent prayer so that we can make sure that we are in fellowship, ready to study the Word, that we are have uh, no unconfessed sin in the life so that we can be properly cleansed, prepared for worship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it is good that we can come together as a body of believers in order to uh, worship you. The highest form of worship is the study of your word because it is in the study of your word that we learn your thoughts. We learn to think as you think and we learn to evaluate, understand, and interpret the details of life from the divine perspective. Father, we're thankful that we can, we have the freedom to gather together in this nation. We're thankful for this nation, all the freedoms that we do have. And, Father, we pray that these freedoms will be maintained, that we can continue to uh, proclaim the truth of your word, proclaim the gospel uh, in this nation without any interference uh, from the government. Father, we also pray that we would be able to continue to send out missionaries, and we continue to pray for those missionaries we support who are uh, serving in various places around the world and with the challenges that are faced today because of the economy and the value of uh, the dollar and other currencies and the problems that presents. We know that uh, you uh, 
continue to supply for all of their needs, and we continue to trust you. But we pray for them and for their encouragement and strength as they proclaim the truth of your word. Now, Father, as we meet together this morning, we pray that our focus, our attention will be upon you, on your word, and on what you have provided for us in this life, and that we may be uh, moved to even greater gratitude as we understand all that you have given us and all that you have provided for us. We pray that all that we say and do this morning will glorify you, and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Please stand with me. We sing hymn number two, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Please stand. Scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 112. Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. A good man deals graciously and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he will never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. The wicked will see it and be grieved He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. Let's stand together and sing our second hymn, number 406, My Hope is in the Lord. This is a tremendous uh, reflection upon God's grace and salvation. Number 406, My Hope is in the Lord. Peter tells us that God has given us everything related to life. And godliness that covers both aspects of our physical existence as well as our spiritual life. Because God has given us so much, our response is to accept it, to receive it, and our response should be one of gratitude because we've come to understand the dimensions of God's love toward us and all that he has provided for us. That is the foundation for giving, the doctrine of giving in the New Testament. The giving is not... Uh, Uh, The amount of giving is not mandated, but the responsibility of giving is certainly part of our spiritual life, part of our responsibility as believers in support of the local church and support of the teaching of God's word both here as well as abroad in terms of missions. Scripture teaches, as every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads together. Father, we are indeed grateful that you have supplied us with so much. You have given us everything we need in our spiritual life, and because Jesus Christ solved the greatest problem we will ever face, 
We know that all other problems can be uh, solved and resolved by dependence upon your word and your power in our lives. Father, we're thankful for all that you have given us and these gifts that we give back are simply a token of our appreciation for all that you have done for us and our desire to see the word of God spread both here and abroad. And we dedicate these gifts to your honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask His guidance and direction upon our study. Let's pray. Father, You have revealed Your Word to us in such a way that it forces us to constantly go back to it, to read it, to study it, and each time we do, we discover uh, new insights, new things. We come to a greater understanding of who You are. We come to a greater understanding of your plan and purposes in human history, and we come to a greater understanding of how we fit within that plan. Father, it is your word that gives light upon our lives, and it is in the light of your word that we are able to see light. We are able to understand truth as it is in reality as you have defined it and described it. And now, Father, we pray that we might submit to the authority of your word because your word is your thinking, and as we come to think as you think, then we come to be able to uh, live in harmony with reality as instead of fighting it and instead of trying to live in our own little fantasy world. So we pray that we might be able to focus, concentrate on your word this morning, that through God the Holy Spirit we may understand these things and see how they apply to our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. At some point in life, every one of us has experienced the fact that we have been told by someone in authority over us to do something that we don't agree with. Perhaps that person was a parent. That frequently happens, especially with uh, teenagers and adolescents, that they are told to do something that they think they're too old to do. It may be an employer where your employer has certain policies or certain ways of doing things that you may not think are wise, that you might not think are good or appropriate. Uh, It might be a teacher in school. It may be a coach. It may be an officer in the military. Uh, It might be your husband. It might be your pastor. It might be God. And you have been told that you should do something a certain way, and it rubs you the wrong way, you think, well, I'm not sure that's really right. 
Now, these challenges to authority are some of the most significant issues that we face in our spiritual life because the Bible is very clear to us on how we are, we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, are to respond to authority, any sphere of authority, because the Bible says that all authority ultimately derives from God. And so the Bible speaks of different uh, spheres of authority. We'll go through several of these. First of all, we know that God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, even the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ from eternity past, was to submit to the authority of God the Father. Within the Godhead itself, this authority relationship always existed. That means that authority is not something that God put into place in order to control creatures. It's not something God uh, ordained or instituted in order to restrain sin, but that authority itself is something that is inherent in the very nature of the social structure of the Trinity. Now, that idea of the Trinity having a social structure may be a different way of expressing it uh, for some of you, but that's what you have. You have three distinct persons within the Trinity that relate toward one another, and that relate toward, uh, after the creation, toward that creation in a specific order, the Scripture says. And so we have passages such as 1 Corinthians 15, 28, and John 5, 19 through 30. You go through that entire section, there are various statements Jesus makes related to the fact that he can do nothing unless the Father uh, allows it. 1 Corinthians 15:28 states, Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also uh, be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. The Lord Jesus Christ is subordinate to the authority of God the Father. Second, we see in Scripture that angels are to be subject to Christ. Angels also have an authority structure that is described in terms of principalities and powers and authorities indicating that there is an authority structure and hierarchy within the angelic order itself, but all angels are to be subject or submitted to Jesus Christ, and that is seen in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse uh, 22 that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers. Once again, we see that word authorities as applied to angels have been made or are subject or submitted to him. Third, we see that every church-age believer is to be submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ. We are under his authority. He is the head of the body, that term head in Scripture, uh, the Greek word is kephale, means authority. It means uh, the one who is the leader, the one who is in charge or in control. Whenever I think of that word, I always uh, chuckle a little bit. I wish I had been there, but a good friend of mine, Dr. Wayne House, who has written a, uh, uh, a tremendous book called The Role of Women in Ministry, uh, which has been a hot topic for numerous uh, decades now, whether or not women can be pastors or in authority over men in the local church. 
and there are a number of those who come out of the feminist movement and uh, have tried to influence, and in many cases have influenced, the, the teaching of the church to where uh, you can have women pastors and women elders and, and that there's no real authority structure within the church. Uh, Wayne is quite bright. He not only has his uh, uh, law degree, but he has various other theological degrees. And so he was debating... Uh, one of the evangelical feminists, Catherine Crager, I believe, who was at the, uh, has written numerous books. She and her, her husband, you always wonder who wears the pants in that family, but, uh, they, ha- she, she was, uh, they were invited to debate this issue at, um, a Presbyterian college in Washington state. And in her remarks, Catherine Crager made the statement, as she had put it into print many times, that the concept of headship in the scripture really means source, like the head of a river. The, the head of the Mississippi, you might say, is up in uh, uh, North Dakota or uh, other places, depending on the tributary you're focusing on. Uh, you may say the head of the Nile is up at Victorian Falls, other things of that nature. But Wayne got up, and Wayne reaches into his briefcase. This wasn't long after uh, computers were made available for Bible study, and you could do all kinds of things. And he reaches in his briefcase and pulls out a ream of paper. And he said, uh, Ms. Krager, I have here a printout of every use of kephale in classical Greek and Koine Greek. Would you please point out one place where the word kephale is used for source? Because there's none. And, of course, she didn't even know Greek, so that was a winning point for him. Christ is the head of the church. That doesn't mean he's the source of the church. It means that he is the one in control. He's the head. He is the leader. And so we, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, are under his authority, and we are to submit to him. Fourth, the Scriptures teach that servants are to submit to masters, and slaves are to submit to their owners. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, and Ephesians uh, 6, uh, verse 5. There we go. Ephesians 6, verse 5 as well. Uh, 1 Peter 2, 18 simply states servants, and the word there could be servant or slave either way. Uh, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, and that has to do with respect for authority. It's the same idea we have in the mandate to fear the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. It has to do with respect for authority and obedience. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Now, that's one of the interesting observations we have to make when we look at these scriptural commands to be obedient to various authorities, is the Bible never puts conditions on that. Never says, uh, children, obey your parents when they're right. Uh, never says, uh, wives, be submitted to your husbands when they're loving and understanding. It never says, believers, be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ when you think it's a good idea. Uh, there, there, there aren't any conditions placed on obedience to authority because... Authority is such a foundational issue in God's creation. Fifth point, wives are to submit to their husbands, Colossians 
in Ephesians 5.22. Colossians 3.18 states, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Paul states it a little differently in 5.22. He says, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, indicating that the authority relationship between a wife and her husband will mirror her response to the Lord Jesus Christ's authority in her own life. That's the way it is in every area of authority. I'm not just picking on you wives. Uh, everybody, how anyone responds to authority, tell, says something about how they respond to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in their own life. Six, children are to submit to their parents as long as you're, somebody often asks, well, how long are children supposed to obey their parents? Uh, as long as they are paying one cent for your upkeep, you're under their complete and total authority, kids. That's just the way it is. If they pay for it, the one, it's the golden rule. He who has the gold rules. <laughs> and so they are, you're under their authority until you're willing to go out and take care of all of your other uh, responsibilities and to pay all the bills uh, for yourself. Uh, seventh, the young are to submit to their elders. That is, those who are more mature, wiser, and been down the road a little longer. Those who are younger uh, are to submit to their elders. First Peter 5, 5, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. goes on to say, yes, all of you be submissive to one another. So that relates to believers in Christ. And be clothed with humility. Submission to authority reflects humility. This is why it's so important in uh, the Lord Jesus Christ's incarnation that he uh, obeyed God even to the point of death. And this showed what true humility is, is that subordination to authority. Uh, eight, church members are to submit to their leaders. This is stated in both Hebrews uh, 13.7 and 17. Remember those who rule over you, uh, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Uh, verse 17, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. That is the role, the leadership of the church, the pastor of the church. Their primary concern is your spiritual life, and that is the uh, realm of their uh, authority. Obey those who rule over you, be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account, because anyone who is in authority, husbands over wives, parents over the family, employers over their employees, will be giving, will be giving an account, will be accountable for the way in which they exercise their leadership and their authority. So uh, the writer of Hebrews continues, let them do so with joy and not with grief. See, whenever anybody is resistant to authority, resistant to leadership, it is such a pain for the person who's trying to get something done because they have to deal with, with recalcitrant people. I often think of Moses and what he must have, uh, must have gone through uh, as a leader. And he was called the most humble man the, in the Old Testament. That's because... Humility is directly related to understanding authority and submitting to authority. Now, the problem that arises for all of us is when someone or some group that is in authority, whether it's in business or whether it's in the home, whether it's in the military, school, or whether it's the government, when someone in authority tells us to do something, 
that we believe or we think is wrong or wrong-headed or it's just not the way things ought to be done or it's not what I want to be doing. Uh, at that point, what happens is that we, as the person under authority, are actually put, judging the person in authority. We are putting ourselves in a position where we're looking at them as if we are the ultimate determiner of what is right, and we are the one who decides that issue. It is subjectivity, not objectivity. And it, for, it, it reveals what the real issue is, is who decides what is right. Do, when parents tell children to do something a certain way, it may be seen as unfair or foolish by the children, but uh, the children, by judging it, by saying, you know, I'm not going to do that, are in effect saying, I know more about this than they do. Uh, they may be right, but on what authority are they going to make that decision? If a husband insists on doing something that seems unwise, wrong, or foolish, or an employer has a policy that is unfair or overbearing, or a government imposes draconian or tyrannical laws, whenever the person under authority steps out from under that authority and disobeys that authority, then what we are saying is that we are omniscient and that we can make a better decision and that we uh, are judging, in fact, this authority as their superior. Now, there are times when authorities are wrong in an absolute sense, but we have to qualify that. We have to come to understand what those conditions are because the question that we have to address as believers is how do we respond to an authority that is indeed in violation of God's mandates? But before we get to that, we have to understand why authority is so important within God's creation and within the Word of God. So I'm going to give you four summary points. First of all, uh, authority is not simply part of creation, as I stated earlier, but it's part of the makeup of the Creator. It's part of the makeup of the triune Godhead. Therefore, it is not something that is secondary. It is primary. It is part of God's very structure, how God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit operates. So authority in and of itself is good. So when you're driving along the highway and you see somebody in front of you and they have one of these bumper stickers that says question authority, they are uh, in violation of a foundational reality in the Trinity. That is an anti-God blasphemy right there. You may have never thought about it that way, but like I have frequently taught, Ultimately, every issue in life comes back to the Godhead. And that's why it's so important to think of things always in terms of who God is and who his position as the creator separate and distinct from the creation. Second, authority is necessary for any social group, and that would include the Trinity. Uh, authority is necessary for any social group, organization, or order, because God creates various orders within, uh, within the angels, for example, or for any order to function. Authority is necessary for any social group, organization, or order to function. Without authority, there is lawlessness, there is anarchy, there is no order. And God is 
1 Corinthians uh, 14 teaches, is a God of order. So the very act of rebelling against an authority, an established authority, carries with it certain theological, if I can use that word, theological implications, certain statements about God, so that by violating an authority in any, in any way that's wrong is ultimately a statement of blasphemy against God. This is how Scripture views authority. Third, at the very center of all authority is God, who is the source of all authority. This is what is stated in Romans when Paul is discussing this in Romans chapter 13. At the core of all authority is God. And so how we respond to authority, any derivative authority, says something about how we respond to God's authority. And this goes ultimately back to the angelic conflict. You see, authority was the real issue in the angelic conflict. When Satan rebelled in eternity past, the fundamental issue was authority. He rejected God's authority and believed he had a better way of doing things. And so violation of authority is ultimately arrogance. It is the arrogance of an individual who believes they know more or can do it better than the person who is in authority. Now, that may, in fact, be true. And that is true in many, many areas. You have always had employees who have a better idea, who are smarter, brighter, more educated, more talented, more intelligent than employers. But if you didn't have the principle of authority, nothing would ever get done and order would dissipate. You always have uh, women and wives who are much brighter and much smarter and have greater skills than many husbands. You always have uh, students who may understand some things better than some teachers. But that is never an excuse for being disobedient or rebellious to that authority. You always have people in the military uh, who have better understanding of some tactical issues than uh, some officers do. And this is always the case. There, Because we are living in a fallen created order, that is always going to be the case. And God in his omniscience knew that from eternity past that you would be a lot smarter than your parents, especially between the ages of 12 and 22. But you just got to get over that and learn authority. Because if you don't learn authority, especially between the ages of one minute and 12, then you will have a lot of trouble the rest of your life. And that's why it's so important for parents to instill that authority orientation into their children in terms of discipline. In terms of discipline, I'm not just thinking in terms of, of punishment or corporate punishment, but in terms of training them so that they can have an orderly, organized response to the issues of life, so that they live a disciplined life, learn to assume responsibilities and to fulfill responsibilities so that when they finally move out from under your uh, care and they're responsible for their own decisions in their own life and paying their bills and keeping out of debt and working hard for an employer, that they can do that in a successful way. And when parents fail to instill authority orientation into their children, that they can guarantee 
a life of misery and failure for their children when they become adults because they're constantly going to be fighting with authorities. And in some cases, this uh, this can be just a, uh, one reason that they never make it in marriage, they never make it in work, they're never a success, they never make it in school, is because they don't have a proper uh, authority orientation. And all of this goes back to the fall of Satan. In Isaiah chapter 14, verses uh, 13 and 14, uh, we read the indictment on Satan. You said, in your heart, it's a mental attitude. I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. Fourth, he said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High. It was a statement of rebellion, a thought of rebellion that, that Lucifer knew more than God did and that he could run the universe better than God can. And that is at the core of every single act of rebellion against authority in human history is this idea that I can do it better than the authority can. I can do it better, uh, better than God can. And we see this working itself out. Uh, in human history from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. You might want to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to work our way through a couple of passages in the Old Testament as we discuss this whole issue of, uh, of authority and how we are to respond to authority. And there's not one person in here that uh, is any better at this naturally than anybody else. You always have the silent rebels as well, so I'm including them. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And this, of course, is the serpent in the garden that Satan is indwelling, and Satan uses the serpent as his vehicle for tempting or testing the woman. And he has figured out that the weak link in the garden is going to be uh, the wife. And so he is going to challenge her first because she is not the one that heard the mandate from God. God gave the mandate to Adam. Adam was then in turn to communicate that as the head of the house, as the head of the fa family, head of the marriage to uh, his wife. And so the serpent says, has God indeed said, and there's a tone there that questions the veracity, the truth, the legitimacy of what God said. He said, did God really say that you shall not eat from every tree of the garden? And see, by posing the question that way, what he's doing is he's beginning to guide her thinking along a certain path. That's always important. You see this in the courtroom when uh, a, a well-trained lawyer is uh, interviewing a witness. He will start his questioning a certain way and continuing because he's trying to uh, force the witness to follow a certain train of thought so that the lawyer can then use that witness to establish the points that the lawyer wishes to establish. So this is Satan's agenda here, and he starts... Uh, addressing the woman, and she responds, and she says, Well, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. She added to it. God had just said, You can eat from any fruit of any tree in the garden except for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And on the day that you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. God said nothing about touching it. But she adds that. So she's already uh, on shaky ground. Then the serpent says in his next question, like a good uh, prosecutor or adversary, which is what Shatan means, uh, Satan means an adversary, uh, the serpent said to the woman, you're not going to die. Subtext, God lied to you. He told you you would die if you ate it, but you're not going to die. So he directly challenges the authority of God and the truth of God. And he goes on to explain why God would have said this. He's going to make up this agenda and impugn the character of God. And he says, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. See, subtext. God really doesn't have your best interest in heart. You know, your, your, your husband's not really the one who has your best interest in heart. Your parents don't really want the best for you. Your teachers really don't know what's good for you. That person in authority over you at work is just out to uh, get all the glory for themselves, not for you. It's the same methodology to simply undermine and impugn the person in authority and to force the individual to think that they're the ones who have, one that has the right to uh, judge the circumstances and the situation. And, of course, uh, Eve just walked right into Satan's trap, and so she looked at the fruit and saw that it was good to eat, and she ate from it. So his strategy put her in a position where she was going to uh, assume a position of authority over God in order to judge the validity of what he commanded. And that's at the very core of the problem uh, with authority is it uh, brings out this arrogance and this subjectivity. So we see that the authority issue is important because it's at the very center of the angelic conflict, and it is this angelic conflict, this rebellion of Satan against God that occurred in eternity past that resulted in his influencing a third of the angels to follow him in his rebellion against God and the uh, impact of that on human history that is so important. This is at the center of what God is trying to demonstrate in history. One of the things is that the importance of submission to God as well as his grace to those who fail and those who are uh, disobedient. God in his grace provides a perfect salvation. But it's a salvation that we have to submit our authority to God in. We have to trust him, and we have to believe that he solved the sin problem at the cross. Again, it is a recognition implicit in believing the gospel that there is a command from God to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we respond to that by trusting in him and him alone. It is that subordination uh, to authority. Well, this whole issue of authority, and authority orientation is at the heart of the first five verses of First Kings. We are studying in First Kings 18, so turn with me there. We're studying in the life of Elijah. Elijah's prophet of God that was called by God to challenge the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. This shows that God's authority is over the king's authority, and the authority of the prophet... Uh, when he is operating in obedience to God, is over the authority of the king. And so 
Elijah is, has announced in 1 Kings 17.1 that there will be a judgment upon uh, the nation and that there will be a famine and it will not rain again for a certain amount of time until Elijah uh, says so. And this is part of the part of the discipline that God is bringing upon the northern kingdom because of their rebellion against him as per the Mosaic law. So you see right away that when God is dealing with the northern kingdom, dealing with his people, he does so within a framework of authority and order and revelation, and that is within the basis of the uh, Mosaic law. And at the time of Elijah... Because the king and his wife had given themselves completely over to the false religion of, uh, of Baal worship and the fertility cults worshiping Baal and the Asherah, that they had basically made it illegal or wrong for anyone who is a citizen of the northern, northern kingdom, any, any Jew in the northern kingdom, to worship God. Now, that was in direct violation of the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law was still the constitution of the northern kingdom. That was their law code that had been given them by God. That was the covenant that God had made with them. And so they had a constitution that prescribed specific behavior on the part of the king and specific behavior on the part of the people. And this was exactly what God expected them to do. But the king had set himself up over the Mosaic law and he had rejected the Mosaic law and he had imposed upon the northern kingdom this tyranny of a false religious system to the degree that Jezebel was sending out her uh, hit squads to search and destroy, search and kill all of those who were believers in the northern kingdom and those who were not worshiping Baal and the Asherah and especially those who were the prophets of God. And so you had a, a situation where you have a government that has been completely perverted by false teaching and false religion and is now engaged in the overt destruction and uh, murder of believers in the northern kingdom. And we meet one of these who has to live in this context of this tyrannical government in the first part of 1 Kings 18. His name is Obadiah, but before we get to him, let's just get the context in the first two verses. In verse 1 of 1 Kings 18, we read, It came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. Now, just a little note. Though the northern kingdom has been in rebellion, though they have been in rebellion toward God and they have rejected the Mosaic law and rejected God, God has not rejected them. God has not deserted the nation and he is still prosecuting the nation according to the promises he made in the covenant. He is still seeking through discipline to bring them back into obedience to him. Second thing we should note that this is, the text says, this is the third year, it's in the third year, since he went to Zarephath. 
the third year since he went to Zarephath, so this is uh, consistent with the fact that the New Testament states that the duration of this famine was three years and six months. He spent somewhere around six to nine months at the Brook Kerith in the first part of uh, 1 Kings 17, and then he spends a, a little over or two and a half to three years in, the, uh, in Zarephath. And so Elijah responds. He is, he doesn't uh, say, well, Lord, you know, Elijah's, I mean, Ahab's probably going to want to kill me. He's probably got people out there with dead or alive posters, preferably dead. And uh, I don't think it's a good idea for me to go back there right now. Uh, Can't we just, uh, can't I just pray from here and it'll start raining? So he knows that he obeys God, even though that puts him into a, uh, precarious, life-threatening situation because God's in control. And God, God, when God is in control, whatever happens is under his, under his control. Our responsibility is to obey him. So Elijah went, verse 2, to present himself to Ahab. And then we have just a contextual note that there was severe famine in Samaria. Now, Samaria is the northern kingdom of Israel. We see the map here. Uh, as I've uh, got it portrayed, the purple shaded area uh, represents the northern kingdom. The area to the upper left is Phoenicia, which is uh, tantamount to modern Lebanon. And Zarephath was a coastal village up in the territory of Phoenicia, right at the heart of the enemy territory of uh, Baal worship. And this is the area uh, where Jezebel uh, came from and uh, a false religion. So uh, he moves from uh, the brook Kerith to Zarephath, and now God is going to have him go back to Samaria in order to confront Ahab. Now in verse 3, we see we shift away from Elijah to see what's going on with Ahab, what Ahab has been doing during the last three and a half years. And in verse 3 we read, Now, Ahab had called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. Now, that tells us something about Obadiah. He is trusted by Ahab, and he is in charge of his house. This is an official position, and the term house isn't just limited to his household, but this would indicate that Obadiah had a position comparable to, uh, let's say, the uh, president's chief of staff. He is over uh, many elements of the government, and so he has uh, one of the highest, second or third highest positions in uh, the northern kingdom. And then the Lord tells us a few things by way of inspiration about Obadiah. And we ought to pay a little attention to uh, Obadiah, who he is, because this tells us something about his character, and he's not a lot different from most of us. Uh, Ahab, uh, now Obadiah, we're told, feared the Lord greatly. Now, Scripture uses this phrase fearing the Lord many different places and it indicates somebody who is who is under the authority of God respects the authority of God and is a believer uh, Solomon writes in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom it has to do with respect for God's authority and so we learn right away that Obadiah is a believer and that he is oriented to God's authority. He knows that ultimately he is accountable to God and not to Ahab. <clears throat> we also see from what he does is that Obadiah has uh, great courage. 
because we're told in verse 4 that for so it was while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them 50 to a cave. These must have been fairly large caves and fed them with bread and water. He didn't just help get them out of harm's way, but he continued at at great personal risk to make sure that they had food and water. And it is no uh, simple matter logistically to provide enough food and water for a hundred people. And so he has hidden them well, and for the last uh, three and a half years, they have been protected. This is not um, not any different from the fact that during the uh, Holocaust, there were uh, many different Jews who hid out in somebody's basement or cellar or someplace like that for nearly the um, duration of World War II. That must have been quite a uh, horrific kind of confinement for them that they could not even come out of a basement because if any neighbor saw them, anybody passing by saw them, then they would uh, have their life in danger. But that's the situation. They are hidden away uh, in these caves. But even though Obadiah has shown great courage in hiding these prophets, we see that he's still uh, scared to death, just like most of us would be If you skip down to verses 8 and following, we see something else about his character. Uh, When Elijah appears to him uh, and he says, "Uh, who's that? Elijah answered him in verse 8 and said, it's I. Go tell your master Elijah's here. And so we see that that Obadiah is quite fearful in the afraid category of, not in the respect category, but in the fear category of Ahab because he knows that Ahab can take his life at any minute. So verse 9 we read that Obadiah's response is, Now how have I sinned against you, Elijah? Why are you sending me on this? man? You're out to get me killed? Uh, You are delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said he is not here, he took an oath uh, from the kingdom or nation that they could not find you. And now you say, go tell your masters, Elijah's here, and it shall come to pass as soon as I am gone from you that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place I don't know where, so when I go and tell Ahab and he can't find you, he will kill me. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. So he has been a believer for many, many years, and he concludes by saying, was it not reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid 100 men of the Lord's prophets, 50 to a cave, and fed them with bread and water. So we see that he is fearful of his circumstances because he knows the power of the government, the power of Ahab, that Ahab can clearly take his life, but nevertheless he has made the decision to disobey the mandate, the policies, the wishes of the king who is in authority over him. Now, what are the principles that should guide us in making such a decision? It is clear from from Scripture that there are certain times and certain circumstances when it is legitimate for the believer to disobey the commands, the mandates of those who are in authority, but we have to look at several of these examples in order to be able to 
uh, derive the principles that can guide us in those situations and those circumstances. The first place we should look is in Exodus, in the book of Exodus. So turn with me, if you will, to the first chapter of Exodus, second book in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 1. And there we see uh, one of these first situations. Exodus chapter 1, verses uh, 15 down through 22, describe the ethical challenge presented to these Hebrew midwives. These Hebrew midwives were uh, ordered by the Pharaoh, called the king of Egypt here in Exodus 1.15, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra and the name of the other Puah. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Uh, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. Now, the background of this is that uh, it has become known to the Pharaoh that there is this uh, legend, this hope among the uh, Jews that God is going to send them a deliverer who will free them from slavery in Egypt. And so he is fearful that they will uh, have this uh, deliverer and they're fearful that uh, uh, they are growing to such a large extent that they have so many males that uh, their, their size or population is beginning to threaten perhaps the security of Egypt. So he's a little bit paranoid about that. And so he wants to uh, limit the number of, of males. And so he has these midwives under orders to kill any male babies. But they don't do that. They feared the Lord. See, that's that same uh, phraseology that we had with Obadiah. They understood that God's authority was over the authority of Pharaoh and that God's authority had clearly revealed that it was wrong in an absolute sense to commit murder. And taking the life of these male infants at birth would be murder. And so the situation that you have is a pattern that we will continue to see is that you have on the one hand an authority who gives a an order to a subordinate. The subordinate recognizes that the order that has come directly to them is in violation of God's righteous standards. And so they make the decision that they will not obey that order. Now notice there's no third party here. This was a rationale that was attempted to be used by some of the anti-abortion activists uh, back during the uh, late 80s and 90s where they say, see, you can go to passages like this and this is a basis for civil disobedience. But what they were doing was they were inserting themselves as a third party coming in saying that uh, uh, you can't obey that authority. That, and uh, so they, were, uh, they misidentified uh, the situation, uh, no matter what one thinks about uh, abortion. The law simply allows for it. It's not mandating it. The government isn't telling anybody that they have to abort. 
And so it doesn't fit this pattern, whatever. This is a pattern where you have an authority enforcing, mandating murder. And the individual who is responsible has the choice of whether to obey the authority or not. But the mandate itself is not in violation of God's uh, command because it's the command is viewed as some sort of principle derived from Scripture. It is direct revelation that is being uh, countered here. And that's what we have to understand. There are a lot of times when we are in positions of authority, uh, under authority where we're working for somebody and they say, well, you need to do this. And we say, well, you know, I really don't think that's right. That, that somehow violates my principles as a believer. Okay, well, does that, is that principle clearly articulated in Scripture or is this just a secondarily derived principle from Scripture? See, if it's a secondarily derived principle from Scripture, then you don't really have a case because we'll see every time you find this in Scripture that God is saying, giving a specific command, I mean, the, 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 uh, the authority, the human authority is giving a specific command to do something, to either do something or not do something that God has specifically commanded to not do or, or to do, whichever the case, case may be. Now, I have one other example I want to look at as we go through this as we come to understand how we make this discernment to obey God rather than man. And this comes from David. This comes from David and his uh, situation, his circumstances with King Saul. And this is described in the book of 1 Samuel, from 1 Samuel 16 almost to the end of 1 Samuel. I'm not going to focus on too many passages. You might want to turn to 1 Samuel 24, and I'll just bring you up to date. First thing we have to recognize is that earlier in 1 Samuel 9, God had had Samuel anoint Saul as the king of Israel. So Saul is the legitimate, God-anointed king of Israel. Saul was sort of a mixed bag originally, and about halfway through his reign, he goes into a full-scale rebellion against God, and he disobeys God, for which God is going to discipline him. And part of that discipline entailed God was going to anoint someone else who would be king after Saul died. But God isn't replacing Saul at the point of his disobedience. He is simply going to anoint uh, David, have David anointed as king. And this is what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Samuel is sent to anoint David to be king of Israel. But even though he is anointed, he is not yet ruling. He's not yet in that position of authority. He was still a young man, probably 17, 18, 19 years of age. But Saul is the authority. He is the king. Now, we have to understand a few things about Saul. First of all, Saul is in rebellion against God and under divine discipline. In 1 Samuel 16, verses 14 and following, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord was taken away from Saul by God, and God sent a distressing or evil spirit to discipline Saul. And over the next couple of chapters, this Evil spirit will come and go. It's not indwelling Saul. It is simply providing some sort of external uh, distress upon Saul. 
and as part of his discipline. And Saul is going to become progressively uh, more and more evil, and he will become progressively more and more uh, rebellious uh, toward God. So Saul is out of fellowship. He's under divine discipline. And not only that, but he is committing crimes toward David personally as well as towards others. He is a king who is a criminal king. At least five times between 1 Samuel chapter 18 and 1 Samuel chapter 20, Saul attempts to kill David, attempts to murder him. Several times he just reaches over and picks up his spear and throws, hurls it at David to pin him against the wall, and David manages to uh, duck or spin out of the way, and God protects him. In 1 Samuel 18:11, Saul attempted to kill David. Again, uh, in 1 Samuel 18, uh, 17 to 30, it's, Saul's being a little more subtle, and he decided to send David in harm's way, gave him a little military mission to attack the Philistines, and uh, in, <clears throat> in that attack, he was to collect a hundred uh, foreskins of the uh, Philistines, not something that is an easy thing to do. And so the difficulty of the task in attacking the Philistines and circumcising them would clearly put David in harm's way, and Saul was hoping that the Philistines would do the job for him and get rid of David. Uh, at the end of that, as it's clear that God protected David, and David uh, succeeded in the task. Um, Saul is uh, uh, states, states in verse verse uh, thirty that or verse twenty nine that Saul became David's enemy continually. So he is implacable toward David. He is clearly out of line. In First Samuel nineteen one, again we're told that with Jonathan he's going to. Uh, make a decision uh, against Jonathan's wishes, though. Uh, he's going to make a decision to kill David. Uh, in 1910, it's again stated that he uh, is going to make a decision to uh, try to kill David. And again, in chapters uh, 20, uh, verse 31, he tries uh, to kill David, makes a decision to uh, try to kill David. Uh, David, though, is able to escape. On his escape, he goes to... Uh, uh, the priests at Nob. Nob is located today uh, out, uh, within the uh, uh, bounds of, of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, but it was uh, nearby at that time. This was where the priests lived. And so David went there in order to get bread for his men and to find a sword in order to uh, protect himself. That's where the sword from Goliath was, was kept. And so David goes there, and because they aided David, Saul then has them all murdered. He accuses them falsely of treason and conspiracy. He has 85 priests killed, and then he sends his hitman Doeg the Edomite to slaughter all of the men and women and children and nursing infants and livestock that were part of the priestly community uh, at Nob, and that's described in 1 Samuel 22, 18, and 19. So by any standard, Saul is an unjust tyrant. He is out of bounds. He is in violation of the Mosaic Law, the constitution of the nation. He is in rebellion against God, and he is committing criminal acts against the people. 
nevertheless, when he, David has the opportunity to kill Saul, he doesn't do it. Now, this is described in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 24, one of these incidents. There's two similar to this, where David is hiding in a cave, large cave in the area at Engedi. I put a couple of pictures of the uh, wilderness or desert of Engedi up on the uh, board so you can get an idea of that area. It is thought that this cave was in the area to the left of where the uh, waterfall is up above. They even have a, a sign there. This is all a national park in Israel now. And they even have a sign there to go to the cave of the Dodim, which is where they believe this took place. So David is in there hiding from Saul. Saul's been chasing him through the desert and through the wilderness. And Saul decides that he needs to relieve himself. And so uh, some the, the you know, the situations that you are described in First Samuel are rather earthy. And uh, so Saul is going to go in and uh, uh, relieve himself. And while he is in there, uh, David comes up very close to Saul and cuts off a corner of his robe. And this is described in, um, in verse 4 of the chapter. And uh, afterwards, that, even that bothered David. That was something he shouldn't have done. Verse 5 reads, Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. And so he recognizes that no matter how rebellious, no matter how out of bounds, no matter how criminal Saul has been, it is not David's responsibility to take Saul's life and to remove him from a position of power, that he has to remain uh, in this position where he is under an unjust authority for the time being until God works out the circumstances for him to become the king. Now, this is parallel to what is fulfilled in the life of Christ. Jesus Christ comes to the earth, which is the domain of Satan. Satan is called the prince in the power of the air. And so the Lord Jesus Christ lives within the world domain. Under the, uh, the world domain is under the authority of Satan. And he is unjustly accused and unjustly punished by both the Sanhedrin the legitimate authority in Israel and the Roman authorities under Pontius Pilate, and he is crucified. And he shows humility in this, Philippians chapter 2 says, because he's being obedient ultimately to God in his plan, but in going to the cross, he is not asserting his authority, which he had every right to, over the authorities of both the Sanhedrin and um, and Rome, but he submits himself to the authority of God and goes to the cross, humbling himself to the point of death, even the death on a cross, in order to secure our salvation. And by going to the cross, he's able to pay the penalty for sin. By being and paying the price for our sin, so that by faith alone in Christ alone, by believing in him, we can have eternal life. Now, the parallel for us is that often we are in positions where there may be an illegitimate authority over us doing something wrong, and rather than rebel, we have to realize God has put us in that place for a ministry mission, and we have to discern what that is 
and humble ourselves and operate under authority, but without violating God's authority in the process. We have to obey God rather than men, and that is exactly what we see evidenced in David. Now, there are other examples that I want to go to in in demonstrating this uh, that we'll look at next time. Two more examples from the Old Testament and then two from the New Testament as we come to discern what is the role, what is the responsibility of the believer in terms of obedience to authority and especially to an unjust or unrighteous authority. So we'll come back and look at that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by these things and recognize that we all operate in spheres of authority and how we respond to authority, our mental attitude indicates not only our subordination to your authority, but also indicates our orientation to grace, and it's related to our understanding of uh, the importance of humility in our own lives. And our Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated this, that he humbled himself even to the point of death, the death on the cross, in order that he might secure our salvation. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty on the cross for your sins that you might have eternal life. And the only condition for receiving that gift is that you believe or trust in Jesus Christ alone for that salvation. At the instant that you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, you are eternally saved, you are justified, you are regenerated, you become a child of God, enter into his royal family, and this position can never, ever be taken away from you. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with these things and that we would be responsive to the teaching and the leading of God the Holy Spirit through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing hymn, hymn number 349, Trust and Obey. Sounds like a fitting title related to the message, number 349, Trust and Obey. And then I'm going to ask Doug Karn if he would please come up and dismiss us in closing prayer.